Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer covers education at Oklahoma Watch. She collaborated with State Impact's Beth Wallace to report on Superintendent Ryan Walter's plan to draw some teachers to the classroom with big sign-on bonuses. Jennifer, what are the basic details of that plan? This was a plan that Walters announced in April, and it is trying to get um, both new and retired teachers to um, come back and work in Oklahoma public schools this fall. Um, and it is offering them bonuses ranging from fifteen to fifty thousand dollars, depending on whether what subject they teach, if they teach pre-K through third grade or special education, which are the two areas uh, being targeted with this program. If they move to Oklahoma, they can qualify for additional funds um, to put them closer to that top amount of that $50,000. Well, fifteen dollars to $50,000 are pretty significant bonuses. How does that compare to the average teacher's salary in Oklahoma? These are very large bonuses. The average teacher's salary this year is expected to be around 60000 and that's taking into consideration um, the pay increases that the legislature passed this past session. How is the Education Department going to pay for those bonuses? So this program is funded with federal funds. Um, Walters and his administration put out some information about it, and it says they're using $16 million total Eight million of that is funds left over from the American Rescue Plan. Well, not exactly left over, but they're funds that are so far unused from COVID relief uh, dollars. The other eight million comes from IDEA. So these are funds specifically for students with disabilities. So uh, all that federal money is part of what some say make the plan a little bit risky, right? That's right. Um as many people know, using federal funds, um, you know, the federal government has a lot of stipulations on that, and they require a lot of oversight. Um, they require a lot of um, thought to be put in. There are a lot of regulations that apply to using these funds that wouldn't necessarily apply if it was, like, allocated by the legislature. Um, you know, we saw some issues with a previous COVID a relief program that Walters handled that got audited and found a lot of misspending. So, um, you know, when when he came out and said he's using federal funds again, uh, I, I think some some folks definitely raised their eyebrows a little bit and and asked more questions. Um, just knowing that we're already under a little bit more scrutiny because of that issue. The other risky part of this that you reported on has to do with uh, a clawback, getting money back after it's been paid out. Tell us about that. Right. So this is the other really interesting part of this program. They are requiring teachers who get these bonuses to commit to teach for five years. There's a five-year commitment, even though teacher contracts can only be one year by state law. They cannot sign a multi-year contract, but they do commit to teach for five years but they get the full bonus up front. And the State Department says they will hand those bonuses out 
this, like the beginning of the school year, like August, September. Um, but if the teacher does not fulfill the five years, and that means they don't leave the classroom and, you know, work somewhere else, or even leave that school district, um, they're supposed to stay there or say they go to teach in a different subject area. That is considered not fulfilling their commitment, and they would then have to pay those funds back. And that was a big concern for district leaders we talked to because the State Department put the onus on them to collect that money back if, say, it's already spent or the teacher cannot pay it back for any reason. Is there an example that you found of how that might work? Right. So imagine this. Uh, you know, we talked to the Deer Creek superintendent. He is hiring a teacher who's moving from California. She's going to teach third grade, I believe. She qualifies for the $50,000. So he is now considering, um, you know, she can get that money. That's great. He is going to have to try to keep her for five years. If for some reason she moves to another district, he is going to have to keep track of her. And say she moves to Oklahoma City and then she starts teaching in Edmond three, four years down the road and she's no longer teaching third grade. Maybe she moves to fifth grade. Well, that disqualifies her. And so now that Deer Creek superintendent is expected to somehow, you know, track her down and get her to pay back a prorated amount of that money. And if she can't pay, I mean, these superintendents are like, what do we do? Send her, send them to collections, you know, go after, like we can't, there's really very little we can do. And it wasn't our money to begin with. It was federal funds. So, you know, why is the, um, why is it our responsibility to then track down those funds? Well, that seems problematic. Do you know uh, why the program was designed that way? So when we talked to the State Department of Education, their response from their press secretary was that they wanted it to be a true bonus program where you get the money up front. Um, but honestly, the fact that the federal funds are running out, the deadline to spend these federal funds is next September, so 2024. I believe that really has more to do with it. If they don't allocate these funds they lose them, you know, uh, and have to pay them back. So, um, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's better to get them out the door and get more teachers in the classroom. But, you know, federal funds are tracked and audited and all of these things. And so if it doesn't go right, it could cause really big headaches for the state and for these districts. Well, what happens next with this program? So right now, the State Department is collecting applications. They said they're reviewing these applications. They said they've already had 500 teachers apply um, the next step would be to notify the ones who qualify and how much they qualify and notify their districts. And then the State Department will send the funds to the districts who then pass it on to the teacher. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, you can read Jennifer's coverage of the proposed uh, teacher bonuses and all her other investigative work on education in Oklahoma at our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you'll also want to make sure to subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Keaton Ross covers democracy for Oklahoma Watch, and in his latest story, he looked into lobbyist spending trends during the 2023 legislative session and what's changed compared to prior years. Keaton, how much did lobbyists spend on elected officials during this year's session? 
So looking at a period from uh, beginning of January through the end of May of this year, um, legislative session officially begins uh, that first Monday in February. Um, but, you know, there's budget hearings, different things happening uh, in January. Um, so looking through that period, it was uh, just under $380,000 uh, through those five months. And how did that compare to, you know, previous recent times? So looking at uh, 2021 and 2022, of course, uh, both of those years affected in different ways by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's a 42% increase uh, this year in that period over 2021. Uh, looking at 2022, it's about a, a 20% increase. I believe it was around $317,000 last year. Um, so somewhat notable, uh, but of course there were the pandemic and, and things impacting that. Now, was there a particular category of lobbyist spending that increased? So the the one category that uh, increased over those years was uh, basically large scale events where groups will invite every lawmaker, or lawmakers or, and their staff to like a banquet offsite or maybe a lunch at the Capitol. Um, there was one event where they um, I believe it was like the Oklahoma Cattlemen's Association had like uh, beef steaks they were serving for lunch uh, as, as part of a big outreach event uh, during one day in the legislative session. Um, so that that's the category that that shot up over the, you know, over recent years, which makes sense. You know, people are, are comfortable, again, having those kind of larger events. Um, so so that's the category that that went up. And how do those big events help lobbyists? Uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of straightforward, you know, kind of like any other business, um, you know, just an opportunity for them to network, try to get their message out. Um, you know, a lot of times it's a uh, maybe not an instance every time where it's a, a lobbyist pressuring a, a lawmaker on a certain vote or uh, issue. Uh, sometimes they're just trying to uh, get get them informed on, on stuff and, and educated on kind of their area of expertise. You know, of course, it's not everyone is going to be an expert on every subject. Um, so that's that's kind of the goal there. Well, which lawmakers took in the most in uh, meals and gifts? So looking at kind of those one on one dinners or um, those sorts of things, um, Senator Casey Murdoch uh, from Fell out in the panhandle. Uh, was number one. Uh, he's been towards the top over the past several years. Um, number two was Senator Ali Seifred, um, who was a, a freshman senator from the the Tulsa area. Um, 23 lawmakers, all of them Republicans, took in $2,000 or more in gifts. Um, of course, as you might imagine, the trend was uh, Republican Party with the supermajority um, tended to take in, in more dollars there. Now, is there a limit on how much lobbyists can spend or how much uh, lawmakers can accept? So single law lobbyists are they're limited to five hundred dollars per uh, year on a single lawmaker. Um, there aren't those those similar caps on lawmakers as far as like they can only take in, you know, three thousand dollars in a year or something like that. Um but of course, Oklahoma is not a massive state. There's maybe only so many lobbyists out there that are registered. Um, so that uh, maybe works works in that way. 
And, uh, you know, we sometimes hear about legislators refusing those gifts. Did we have any who uh, opted out on the gifts and meals from lobbyists in the past session? This year, there were uh, two lawmakers, uh, Representative Tom Gann and Representative Rick West. Um, both of them are pretty staunch uh, fiscal conservatives. Um, they were the only two Republicans to vote against the, the state's budget plan this year um, over concerns that there was there was too much spending there. Um, I talked to Representative West last week, and he basically said that, uh, you know, it's a promise he made to to his constituents. Um, he'll sometimes meet with lobbyists or, or go to some of these function, but uh, pays back in his own money for whatever uh, meal or, or beverage he took in. Um, so it's kind of just, you know, something to to show his district that he's he's trying to look out for their best interests. Now, uh, gifts and meals from lobbyists aren't the only thing lawmakers can benefit from during the session, right? That's right. So with campaign contributions to, you know, a lawmaker's reelection fund, lobbyists are are banned from contributing to that during the session. Um, but there's nothing stopping individuals who aren't registered from making those sort of contributions. Um, we saw around $140,000 in, in those sorts of comp- contributions uh, during the legislative session, um, which is, is somewhat interesting considering we're uh, pretty pretty far away off from the uh, next election cycle for them. Uh, filing will come up in April of next year. Um, so that that is another way that, you know, if someone's not a lobbyist, they can maybe try to chip into their campaign fund uh, and get their attention that way. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about uh, lobbyist spending during the 2023 legislative session, as well as all his other work covering democracy in our state on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you'll also want to subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story looks at a committee's recommendations for prayer in public schools. Jennifer, the committee's recommendations were announced by Superintendent Ryan Walters at the last Board of Education meeting. What are they? So, like you said, there are three recommendations. The first is to have schools enforce existing state statute requiring a minute of silence. Um, at the start of every day, and that gives students, a, a, you know, some quiet time to reflect on their day or pray if they choose to. Uh, the second recommendation was to require each classroom to display a poster of the Ten Commandments. And the third recommendation was to require all public school students to take a Western Civilization course for graduation. Now, uh, the committee that recommended these is the Faith Committee that uh, was announced a couple of months ago. Did uh, the board adopt those recommendations? No. So these were not up for a vote. These recommendations were read during Superintendent Walters' comments, his update to the board. But this was not something that was voted on. This is not um, being implemented or anything like that. Did Walters endorse them? Did he encourage the board to adopt these? He did the first one. He urged schools to immediately make sure that they are enforcing this existing state statute for the minute of silence. 
the, both the committee and Walters, you know, really emphasize that it should be a full minute and not cut short in, in any way and not a moment of silence as schools often do. But when I looked at the statute, it specifically was written as approximately a minute. So I, I don't, I, I believe that goes above what the law says. But that was the only one that he really um, endorsed. The other two, he read the recommendations and did not address them after that. Now, uh, posting the Ten Commandments in classrooms seems especially problematic, doesn't it? Absolutely. There, I mean, we just had the state question in 2015, I believe, 2016, um, you know, voters did not want the Ten Commandments on the grounds of the Capitol. I doubt they would then make some leap that they wanted in every classroom in the state of Oklahoma. I mean, this comes straight from the Bible. It's a very specific, um, you know, promotes a very specific religion. Obviously, there are many, many public school students who are not of that religion. Now, uh, how did the committee come about and who's on it? So this is interesting. Um, in February at the board meeting, Ryan Walters announced this committee. Again, this was during his comments. Um, he said this was only his second board meeting, right? He had just taken office a month before. He said he got this letter from a group of religious leaders. They wanted a committee. And so he announced it and said he was forming this committee. He was going to choose members. He called it a blue ribbon committee. Um, and then we hadn't heard anything since. And then at this most recent board meeting, um, he announced that the committee had completed their work, um, made their recommendations, and um, there were 11 members who served on that committee, according to the State Department of Ed. Uh, most, most of these folks are, you know, local uh, Baptist pastors or, you know, Catholic um, church officials. Uh, the one you'll probably recognize the most is Jackson Lehmeyer, who, of course, ran for Congress and formed Pastors for Trump. Um, and I asked Walters afterward how he chose these members because five of the members who asked for the committee were on the committee. Um, he said he let the committee choose their own members. Now, what do those recommendations have to do with improving Oklahoma education? That is a great question. Um, I mean, you know, th there have been a lot of criticism of these since they've come out. None of them really address you know, COVID learning loss or, um, you know, student learning. I mean, it's, it's you know, the committee, of course, says that this, seeing these things, taking the Western Civilization course, seeing the Ten Commandments will um, help create better citizens, but they seem to have very little to do with education. Do you think Superintendent Walters has a broader purpose in mind? Absolutely. Um, you could very much tell from his remarks at the last meeting, you know, he he read from um, some prepared remarks that very much seemed to have been written by an attorney. Um, they cite different cases and, um, you know, it's it's very kind of legalese. It very much seems like he is expecting this to go to the Supreme Court, at least Oklahoma Supreme Court, if not further. Um you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that the um, statewide virtual charter school board, you know, is considering this Catholic school at the same time. 
You know, Walters has started praying at the start of every board meeting, which he also reads, you know, from a prepared um, uh, printed out paper. Um, You know, he posted on his official Facebook the other day a picture of him uh, with two local pastors who he said came to pray over him for his, um, you know, for his job and his duties. Um, I think all of this is really a coordinated effort to try to get uh, him some, you know, notoriety, some recognition, um, make a name for himself through um, pushing religion into public schools and getting it to the Supreme Court. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, You can read Jennifer's coverage of that school board meeting and the recommendations from the Faith Committee, as well as all her other investigative work on Oklahoma education at our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.